From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Today, Noam Chomsky on the bombings of Yugoslavia. And it's announced that June 16th will be the day that the world bids goodbye to Nelson Mandela as president of South Africa. We'll speak with an author who profiles an assassin there. And all of a sudden he froze and stopped talking. And I said, are you spooked by the night? And he said, yeah. He said, it's a condition maybe of my post-traumatic stress. He says, I guess you could say this is the spoils of the conflict. And the irony struck me that here was a man who once did his best work at night, and now the night had turned on him. All that and more coming up on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Welcome to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. NATO missiles hit airbase offices and army and police facilities in the Yugoslav capital, Belgrade, early today. This according to local media and eyewitness reports. Studio B Television said missiles had hit the offices of an airbase in Belgrade's northern district of Zemun. A Belgrade resident said a series of explosions was also heard in the city's eastern neighborhood of Zvezdra. The explosions at around 4.45 a.m. were the latest in a series of blasts which shook the capital after midnight. Belgrade has become a major target for NATO air raids in recent days after the alliance announced plans to intensify its campaign against Yugoslavia. Monday's attacks come after NATO bombed a heating plant and a suburban oil refinery less than 24 hours ago. Last week, NATO missiles destroyed the headquarters of the Serbian and Federal Yugoslav Interior Ministry in the heart of the city. Albania is willing to take in up to 100,000 Kosovo refugees stranded on the Macedonian border, provided it's given the resources to look after them. This according to the German Interior Minister. Nations such as Britain and Denmark have also offered sanctuary for some of the refugees fleeing Kosovo. According to a NATO spokesperson, over one million Kosovo Albanians have been uprooted from their homes. According to a Dutch defense minister yesterday, NATO should have been able to predict this latest tragedy in Kosovo and should have taken steps to alleviate the suffering of Kosovar Albanians. Three U.S. soldiers captured by Serb forces will not be put on trial and will be freed when the NATO bombing ends, this according to a Serb cabinet minister. Milan Bozic, minister without portfolio in the Yugoslavian government and deputy mayor of Belgrade, said on the ABC program this week, of course they'll not be tried and they will be back in their homes as soon as this stupidity stops. This weekend on Saturday, the Reverend Al Sharpton called for a national day of civil disobedience in order to combat police brutality. Sharpton spoke at a rally against police abuse in Washington, which was sponsored by the New York-based Center for Constitutional Rights. From the Capitol step, Sharpton called for the day of civil disobedience outside police headquarters where abuses have been documented. He also announced a national tour against police brutality. And Sharpton called on President Clinton to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate police brutality. Meanwhile, in New York, Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau plans to drop charges against more than 1,200 demonstrators who were arrested last month for dis- civil disobedience over the police killing of Amadou Diallo, a Guinean immigrant. 
Police Commissioner Howard Safer disagreed with Morgenthau's decision, saying in a statement, it's my opinion these summonses should have been prosecuted through the system with a judge making the final determination. In Laramie, Wyoming, there's talk that a man accused of beating a gay college student to death may make a plea bargain. Speculation that a deal is imminent has grown after jury selection in Russell Henderson's trial was delayed for a court hearing today. No word yet on what the hearing will cover. Henderson is charged with murder, kidnapping and robbery in the brutal attack on Matthew Shepard. He died days after being found bloodied and tied to a fence last year. Another man faces an August trial in the killing, which has prompted nationwide calls for stronger hate crime laws. In Cincinnati, families of 90 cancer patients who allege their relatives were unknowingly subjected to military-sponsored radiation experiments have reached a proposed $5 million settlement, this according to the Cincinnati Inquirer. The lawsuit, filed five years ago, alleged terminally ill cancer patients who sought treatment at Cincinnati General Hospital between 1960 and 71 were given full body and partial body doses of radiation. Researchers could measure the effects. The facility is now known as University Hospital. Robert Newman, attorney for the 50 of the plaintiffs, said the settlement would amount to about $50,000 for each family. Terms also include an apology from the government and a memorial plaque to be placed on the University of Cincinnati campus listing the patient's names. And a Beijing member of the banned opposition China Democratic Party was taken away by police late last night on the eve of a Chinese festival commemorating the dead, this according to a Hong Kong rights group. The whereabouts of the man are unknown and police did not explain why he was taken away. The group that is putting out this information is called the Information Center of Human Rights and Democratic Movement in China. Once upon this planet Earth lived a man of humble birth, preaching love and freedom for his fellow men. He was dreaming of the day peace would come to earth to stay. He spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! And in the background, Nina Simone singing about Martin Luther King. Yesterday was the 31st anniversary of his assassination. Today, though, we're going to go first to... Kosovo and Yugoslavia. NATO airstrikes on Yugoslavia will go on longer than planned, possibly because of miscalculations by NATO experts. This according to France's foreign minister. He said airstrikes are going on longer than planned because NATO experts may have mistaken expectations or because poor weather hinders the abilities of certain types of planes. Also, Britain told Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic today there would be no question of a peace deal over Kosovo until the ethnic cleansing of the province was reversed. Joining us right now to talk about the U.S.-NATO bombing of Yugoslavia is Noam Chomsky. Professor Noam Chomsky is a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology of Linguistics and well-known uh, political analyst and critic. Welcome to Democracy Now! Noam. Well, overall, first, what is your reaction to these bombings? 
Well, my uh, reaction to the bombings is uh, essentially that of the uh, UN, the, uh, the NATO uh, U.S. commander, Wesley Clark. A day or two after the bombings began, he stated that it was entirely predictable that the bombings would uh, lead to a sharp uh, escalation of atrocities in an effort to drive out uh, ethnic Albanians. The phrase entirely predictable is too strong, but the general point is correct. And that's pretty much what happened, and it was predictable. I mean, last year, uh, about 2,000 people were killed. Uh, the main fighting started after the uh, Kosovars switched from support for a long nonviolent resistance program, which received elicited no support from the West. In fact, they were simply dismissed, uh, turned to... Uh, uh, violence, which uh, led to counter-violence of a much greater kind. As I said, about 2,000 people killed. As the uh, threats of uh, NATO bombing increased, uh, the violence increased. As the monitors were withdrawn, the violence increased. Uh, when the bombing actually began, uh, it very sharply escalated uh, for essentially the reasons that General Clark uh, uh, stated the reaction to the uh, threat, and then actuality of the bombing had the the effect, predictable if not entirely predictable, of uh, uh, in, uh, offering an, both a motive and an opportunity for uh, uh, an, uh, heightened uh, heightened atrocities and uh, expulsion of population, which is now reaching very severe crises. I mean, it's now approaching perhaps the level of, of other examples. Uh, for example, it's not yet anywhere near as high as the expulsion of Palestinians in 1948, uh, or no, it doesn't come close to the uh, atrocities against uh, Turks in southeastern Turkey uh, a few years ago. Uh, but it's on the level perhaps of Colombia and other atrocities, pretty, pretty serious. The, some of these issues have begun to be raised. Uh, for example, the idea of comparative uh, genocides, not just expulsions of people. Uh, the idea, for example, that in 1994, uh, close to a million Rwandans were killed in 10 days, yet the U.S. not only didn't go in to intervene, uh, but Clinton refused to even use the term genocide, and yet here uh, it is used much easier. Uh, far fewer people are killed. But do you think this comparative use of the term and rationale is helpful? The comparative, the use of the term genocide is that's just a propaganda term. I mean, it's used for atrocities that the United States opposes. Scale is irrelevant. It can be five people. Uh, if you, uh, uh, the, the term has essentially unfortunately lost its meaning. It's just simply used as a term referring to atrocities to which the United States happens to be opposed. So say, for example, when the United States was actively involved in the expulsion of uh, maybe a, a million or so people from uh, uh, in southeastern Turkey when thousands of villages were destroyed and you know, tens of thousands of people were killed. This is under the Clinton administration. It's not that long ago. Uh, that was not called genocide. In fact, it was barely reported. And the reason is it was using, it was kind of like Timor. It was using overwhelmingly American arms, which uh, continued to flow uh, 
peak as the atrocities peaked in 1994, so that wasn't genocide. And similarly, it wasn't called genocide when uh, 750,000 Palestinians were uh, uh, kicked out of their country uh, uh, in 1948. That wasn't genocide. Uh, nor is it called a genocide in Colombia, where there's a million and a half refugees, perhaps, something of that order. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Concern over the the concern correlates with the uh, with the uh, assessment of a threat to uh, to Western interests. So if people want to slaughter each other in Sierra Leone, that doesn't harm the interests of West Europeans, and therefore it's not a crisis. And in fact, there, for example, the United States has uh, actively uh, undermined uh, efforts by the United Nations to. Uh, undertake peace, peacekeeping operations. Uh, in the Congo, which is the biggest war probably in the history of modern Africa, uh, the UN, the United States, the Clinton administration, uh, refused to provide $100,000 to uh, uh, pay for a uh, peacekeeping mission. And that's not a crisis because it's you know, not harming the interests of rich and powerful people. Any turbulence in the, Bos in the Balkans, in contrast, uh, has carries with it the threat of uh, danger to uh, European and United States interests and therefore becomes a crisis. Scale is not, not a relevant consideration. What do you think, Noam Chomsky, should happen right now uh, in the Balkans, in Yugoslavia? What should the U.S., what should NATO be doing? Well, it's, it, I think it is should be clear to any moderately dispassionate observer that the NATO bombings, apart from being a sharp attack on the principles of international order and uh, world order and international law, apart from that, are having the predictable effect of sharply escalating the atrocities. When you're carrying out an action that is uh, making a bad situation worse, much worse, first step is to stop carrying out that action. Uh, after that, uh, so the bombing should be stopped. Uh, after that, uh, efforts should be made to explore the few remaining options. Uh, the more violence is used, the fewer the options are. So there are fewer options now than there were two weeks ago. But they're still not zero. They just become fewer and uglier. Uh, the, uh, it, it will mean a return to some form of negotiations and diplomacy. Uh, the United States and Britain, the two warrior states, are basically uh, uh, have uh, rendered themselves uh, uh, ineligible for participation in any such negotiations. But there are uh, uh, powers with a more and elements with a more neutral stance that might try to undertake them. As I say, the options are very much reduced, and, uh, and the few that remain are pretty ugly. But uh, perhaps the best that one can imagine at this stage of the game is uh, some kind of partition of Kosovo, with, which is probably what Milosevic is aiming for anyway, uh, with uh, the nor northern areas, which are the areas with the resources and the um, historical monuments and so on, uh, with those taken over simply by uh, Serbia, and the rest, which is a kind of, will be a kind of a desert uh, used to re return uh, uh, Kosovars that the West doesn't want. It's not pretty. It's ugly, but uh, hard to see what what other options remain. 
What do you think of the reaction of the traditional progressive peace community in this country? Well, you can understand people. People should be concerned by atrocities. That's correct. Uh, on the other hand, selective concern for atrocities uh, is not a high moral stance. When you are concerned with atrocities because uh, uh, powerful elements, the government and the media and so on, tell you to be concerned about them, or when you're concerned about them because uh, they threaten the interests of privileged and wealthy people, that's not a very high moral stand. On the other hand, people are certainly genuinely concerned by the atrocities. Uh, out of that mixture, one can draw some conclusion. I hesitate to do it. Uh, can you expand on that? Look, I think that the it's a human, decent reaction to be concerned by atrocities. On the other hand, you should understand that you're being directed to respond to certain atrocities those that affect the interests of wealthy and powerful people. So you're to be concerned about the Kosovars. You are not to be concerned about the Kurds. You are not to be concerned about Sierra Leone. You're not to be concerned about Colombia. To take an area of the world very far away, uh, in Laos, right now, this minute, uh, thousands of people are being killed every year from unexploded U.S. terror weapons, not um, sort of much worse than landmines, little bomblets. Uh, and the U.S. refuses to clear them or even to provide uh, information as to how to render them harmless to groups that are trying to clear them. Well, you're not supposed to be concerned about those atrocities because they're ours. Uh, if, uh, if, uh, the, the feeling of revulsion against what uh, is seen, accurately seen, as, an as major atrocities in Kosovo is understandable, and it should be tempered by the understanding that uh, you're being manipulated. You mentioned the Kurds, which uh, brings us to Iraq. At the same time the U.S. is bombing Yugoslavia, it seems that the Pentagon has a dream come true, bombings on two fronts, because uh, U.S. has just once again bombed Iraq, as they've been doing almost consistently daily for the last months. Yeah, but we should add to that that... Uh, you know, the bombing is the visible atrocity, but it's, it, it pales into insignificance uh, in comparison with the sanctions, which are just which are just mass murder. I mean, if you want to use the term genocide, it's a term that I don't like. Uh, it applies much more accurately to the uh, killing of, uh, say, 5,000 children a month in uh, Iraq simply as a result of the sanctions. Well, Noam Chomsky, we have to break for stations to identify themselves. I hope you could stay with us for just two minutes longer after that break to talk about NATO and what this means for the expansion of NATO. And if you think the bombing of Yugoslavia uh, has everything to do with NATO being strengthened and, by extension, uh, arms manufacturers, particularly U.S. arms manufacturers, that make such a profit from this more than billion dollars a day that's being spent on the bombing of Yugoslavia. We are talking to Professor Noam Chomsky, professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of dozens of books, including Profit Over People, Neoliberalism and Global Order which is published by Seven Stories Press. Stay with us.
You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!, the exception to the rulers. I'm Amy Goodman. Our guest is Noam Chomsky, talking about the bombing of Yugoslavia, NATO, uh, what this means for NATO and for U.S. arms manufacturers. Noam. Uh, With regard to NATO, I I would place it in the context of the long-standing U.S. uh, uh, effort to uh, undermine and neutralize uh, international institutions. Uh, That began years ago because they began to fall out of control. And it was made very explicit and clear and uh, official U.S. policy. The U.N. is just worthless. It's out of control. Uh, The world court is out of control. Uh, Therefore, uh, similarly, other, I mean, even the World Trade Organization, insofar as it doesn't go along with U.S. demands, is uh, pushed to the side and eliminated. Uh, The U.S. is what is called in the current issue of foreign affairs of all places a rogue superpower. Uh, It simply uh, is going to run the world its own way, uh, lawlessly and by violence if necessary. Now, that requires a shift of authority from the Security Council, uh, where it's vested in international law, to NATO, uh, which is under essentially under U.S. control. Uh, therefore, there's an expansion of NATO power uh, as a reflection of the... Uh, in the early 1950s, the United States could use the United Nations as a cover for its actions. That can't be done anymore. Uh, therefore, NATO is a more reasonable cover. Uh, also, just as dirty work could have could be shunted over to the United Nations if the U.S. didn't want to do it. Uh, the same can be done uh, with NATO. You can shift the dirty work over to the Europeans when you don't feel like doing it, uh, as long as the U.S. remains in control. Uh, a side effect of this is the one you mentioned. Uh, expansion of NATO is uh, just a bonanza for arms manufacturers. They're the main ones in favor of it. And the use of weapons, of course, uh, uh, increases uh, the need for them, and that's a further bonanza to arms manufacturers. However, here, too, we ought to bear in mind that arms manufacturers, uh, that's kind of a euphemism that refers to most of high-tech industry. Uh, high-technology industry has been developed primarily in the state sector, huge state sector in the United States, and it's been done under a cover of uh, military spending very commonly. So, you know, High-tech industry doesn't explicitly gain when you shoot off a cruise missile, but the uh, development of the technology, its uh, dual use, its transfer to civilian uses and so on, that's the way most dynamic sectors of the economy develop. Then they're later taken over by private capital when they become profitable. I mean, that's that's the essential driving force of the, the economy. I get the sense very much over the last two weeks of a military hardware show and the corporate networks, which, uh, in fact, are owned by weapons manufacturers that are making parts of the weapons for the bombing of Iraq, yeah. with uh, CBS being owned by Westinghouse and uh, NBC being owned by General Electric. But today, the announcement that Apache helicopters will be moving in, uh, the triumph of the B-2, which was considered such a major boondoggle for so long, etc. Yeah, but I think we should not be misled by that. Uh, over the years, that feeds into your computer, the airplane you take when you visit San Francisco and so on. That is the foundation of the high-technology economy, and that's the reason for it. You know, The reason is in part the use of force, but also the reason is 
uh, it uh, undergirds the uh, future uh, high technology industry. This was well understood in the 1940s uh, when uh, the first Secretary of the Air Force, Truman Secretary of the Air Force, uh, told Congress uh, we should not use the term subsidy, we should use the term security. Yeah, and that's the way it works. So if you use the Internet, uh, that's because for uh, 20 or 20 years or so it was developed uh, within the military uh, until it got to the point where it could be handed over to Bill Gates. You mean it wasn't developed by Al Gore? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> as late as 1994, pretty recent, Bill Gates was so uninterested in the Internet, he wouldn't even attend conferences concerning it. At that point, it had already been developed for 30 years, mainly within the military, the state sector, the military, and then the National Science Foundation. Finally, Noam, where do you see the bombing uh, in the Balkans, the bombing of Yugoslavia going? What do you see as the end? Well, you know, bombing is, uh, has its own dynamics. Uh, it will... Uh, I mean, it could go a lot of different ways. I mean, for example, maybe a sort of worst-case possibility, which is not excluded, is that uh, if, if Kosovo is largely uh, cleansed of its population, remember that means Albanians, but also Serbs. Serbs are fleeing north. Uh, if the population is sharply reduced and there's mostly military forces there, uh, the United States could just carpet bomb it and turn it into a desert possibility. Uh, Bel uh, meanwhile, Yugoslavia is being, uh, it's not, you know, you, you, the, the talk is military buildings, but the few Western correspondents like Robert Fisk, who you know, go into hospitals, find uh, plenty of uh, civilian casualties, horrible cases of civilian casualties, of course. Uh, one effect of the bombing inside uh, Serbia is uh, to have undermined and probably destroyed a very promising and courageous uh, democratic opposition, which is now mostly rallying around the flag, as people do when you get bombed. Uh, the long-term consequences of that, even within Yugoslavia, are, could be pretty ugly, and uh, in the surrounding regions, it's just unpredictable. With the strengthening of Milosevic. Yeah. And finally, have you been called to be on any of the corporate networks to uh, be a talking head to offer your years of uh, expertise looking at global politics? Uh, foreign corporate networks, yeah. And in the United States? The usual. Well, thank you for being with us, and I encourage people to call the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and ask them, uh, where is Noam Chomsky? Why do they put... Uh, military generals on the payroll to offer their analysis and yet not put peace activists and other analysts on the payroll uh, to talk about uh, their views. Noam Chomsky has been our guest, Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor, well-known author, activist, uh, one of his latest books, Profit Over People, Neoliberalism and Global Order by Seven Stories, though it is hard to keep up. Thanks for being with us, Noam Chomsky. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now. We're going to turn to South Africa. Asimbo nanga. Asimbo nanga. 
You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Well, the eyes of the world and South Africa will be on Pretoria on June 16th, when hundreds of world leaders and other dignitaries will join tens of thousands of South Africans to bid farewell to President Mandela. Hundreds of invitations have already been sent to almost every head of state and government. Well, today we're going to talk about South Africa, look back at the old South Africa, and look ahead at the new. We're joined right now by David Goodman, who is the author of a new book called Fault Lines, Journeys into the New South Africa. Well, yes, you guessed it, David Goodman. He's also my brother. Welcome to Democracy Now!, David. It's a pleasure to be here, Amy. People might think I can't do an objective evaluation of your book since you are my brother, but I'm sure you fear the opposite, that as your older sister, I'm going to be hypercritical and that that's why I can't be objective. But we'll put the two together. We won't pretend any objectivity and just talk about South Africa, where you lived for the last year. As long as you aren't as tough on me as you were in pillow fights in our youth, I think this will go just fine. (laughs) Well... This is really very significant, June 16th, uh, President Mandela stepping down. What is the significance of June 16th? June 16th is a watershed date in South Africa. It was on this day in 1976 that South Africa boiled over in the most significant uprising against apartheid in decades. And that really was the day that began the process that led to the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990, his election as president in 94, and now the day, it's hard to believe we've actually come to this point, the end of his tenure as head of state of South Africa. In my book, Fault Lines, I profile a number of people, eight people, who straddled the fault lines of apartheid, the people who were on opposite sides of the political and racial divide in South Africa. For two of those people, that June 16th, 76 date looms very large. This was an assassin, a former government assassin in South Africa. He worked for the secret police, a man named Paul Erasmus, and his intended victim, a man named Reverend Frank Chikani, who he tried and failed to kill. I followed both of these men and profiled their lives and how they got to where they were. And this date, the Soweto riots, uh, loomed very large for them. Frank Chikani became a pastor in a small community, a black township outside of Johannesburg, one week before all of South Africa blew up. I should just say what the Soweto riots were. It was an uprising led by students they were protesting against the use of Afrikaans, which was the language of white Afrikaners, as the medium of education in South Africa. Now, this might seem as a, like a fairly a small item which would lead to uh, a whole country boiling over, but in fact, much of the uh, uh, older leadership of the resistance in South Africa had been jailed, was exiled, was on the run, and so it fell to the youth to uh, launch the protests that began months of burnings and battles with police. And what that date really did was show the black resistance in South Africa that they could not only make a dent in uh, the armor of apartheid, but actually begin to see a flicker of what ultimately came to pass, which is that they could bring it down. How many people did the South African military and police kill that day? 
It's estimated that about a thousand people were killed in the Soweto riots. The riots spanned uh, many days, ultimately weeks. They spread. They started in the township of Soweto outside Johannesburg and spread throughout the country. Most of those who were killed were schoolchildren because they uh, both started and remained at the forefront of that struggle. Let me get back to these two characters who I was mentioning because they really dramatize on a human level what it meant. For Frank Ciccani, uh, a young pastor starting his first assignment, leading a church outside Johannesburg, he was completely unprepared when all of a sudden police cracked down on his township, every government building in his township that meant liquor stores, uh, governing council offices, was burned down as a protest against uh, apartheid rule. Now, South Africa had been very, fairly quiescent for nearly two decades. Basically, when Nelson Mandela and his colleagues were arrested in the early 60s, um, it was a major victory for the white government. Uh, resistance really lapsed into remission to uh, a great degree, and it wasn't until 1976 that it came back. For Chikani, he all of a sudden found himself in the middle of a war situation. What followed from that time, just to fast forward, was a period of, over the course of a number of years, Chikani rose through the ranks, became a very articulate and fiery orator. Um, he was jailed, uh, detained without trial six times, tortured three times, rose eventually, to, went into exile for a year, rose to become head of the South African Council of Churches, which was previously led by Archbishop Tutu, and ultimately in 1989, there was an assassination attempt that very nearly succeeded against him. And today, very significantly, uh, he is basically the chief of staff of the man who will probably be the next president and will be celebrated by heads of state around the world on June 16th, Thabo Mbeki. That's right, Amy. Uh, Frank Chikani is now the director general of Thabo Mbeki's office. That makes him basically the top lieutenant to the president in waiting. Few people are surprised to see Frank Chikani occupying the seat of power in South Africa. It has been a long and torturous, literally, road for him to get there. But talk about what happened to him years ago and these two people that you profile, Frank Ciccani and Paul Erasmus, the man that stalked him. Frank Ciccani's story is absolutely unbelievable, the time that he went to Namibia. In 1989, Chikani, who at this point was considered one of the uh, really spokespeople for the resistance in South Africa, he traveled with a um, church delegation to the neighboring country of Namibia to, oversee, to have a look at what was going on uh, in anticipation of Namibian independence, which came uh, a year later in April 1990. Namibia had been occupied and at war with South Africa for nearly three decades at that point. Um, Chikani suddenly fell deathly ill as he was driving uh, with, with colleagues in Namibia. He was found him, his chest tightening, he was barely able to breathe, his vision blurred, and finally he lost consciousness. Um, they rushed him to a small Lutheran hospital, which was really in the outback there, where two German doctors fought for five hours to bring him back to life. Meanwhile, the South African Council of Churches dispatched a plane from Johannesburg with life support equipment to bring him back to the hospital in Johannesburg. Chikani survived only long enough for three weeks, 
he was in the United States accompanying Archbishop Tutu and other church leaders to meet with then-President uh, George Bush. Um, they were going on a mission to urge Bush and the U.S. Congress to keep up pressure on Pretoria. It was in the United States that he once again fell deathly ill three times. He was rushed to the hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, where he was visiting his wife, who was studying there at the time. Uh, he ended up on a ventilator, very nearly died, and it was only after the third time that doctors in Wisconsin discovered that he had been mysteriously poisoned. You describe in Fault Lines in 1984 being in South Africa and visiting Hotza House, which was a place where there were many progressive organizations like the South African Council of Churches, and you describe a man outside. I didn't know when I was going in and out of Chotza House, uh, which was the headquarters of the South African Council of Churches and also a home to a whole beehive of activist groups ranging from the United Democratic Front, which was the leading anti-apartheid organization in the country, to uh, the Black Sash, a group that counseled uh, uh, blacks who had been arrested for past law offenses. Um, Every time that I would go in and out of there, which was frequently, because if you were, wanted to see the real South Africa, what was going on in the townships, all roads ultimately led to Hotza House. Many activists were clearing through there on a daily basis. Well, outside, needless to say, the secret police, known as, this, as the security branch of the South African police, or as South Africans call it, just the branch, um, had a lot of interest in the activities of Hotza House. A man who was particularly interested was Paul Erasmus. And we're going Paul to talk Erasmus, about David uh, Paul began Erasmus. began his career shortly after this. In just a minute, Paul Erasmus, the author of uh, Paul Erasmus is the assassin in the book Fault Lines. David Goodman is the author of that book, Journeys into the New South Africa. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! We'll hear his story when we come back. listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue on this journey into the new South Africa, David Goodman, my brother, is the author of a new book called Fault Lines, published by University of California, Berkeley Press, which profiles eight people, including Frank Chikani, who is the director general of uh, basically the president-in-waiting, uh, Thabo Mbeki, and also Paul Erasmus, Paul Erasmus, who was responsible for the poisoning of Frank Chikani. In fact, it was his underwear that was laced with a deadly 
insecticide, and each time he put it on, he would get terribly ill. David, you were just telling us about Paul Erasmus. Paul Erasmus uh, began his career shortly after the Soweto uprisings, and once again, uh, that date figured prominently in the formation of his whole worldview. He wanted to know why were blacks in revolt? What was behind all this? And what he decided in the aftermath of the Soweto uprising was that it was communists trying to stir up these innocent blacks. And so it began a, a long and sordid career, uh, which eventually led to him becoming a secret policeman uh, in early 1977, shortly after the Soweto riots. Well, one of Paul Erasmus's main charges was investigating the South African Council of Churches and ultimately a man named Frank Ciccani who headed it. Talk about Paul Erasmus's education, uh, sadly miseducation, but how he became the killer that he was. Well, Paul Erasmus fascinated me. First of all, let me tell you what it was like to meet this guy. Uh, this was no ordinary uh, interview. When I first got a hold of him, which was difficult enough as it was, he instructed me to come to a certain town in South Africa to call him from a payphone, and we would meet then at a spot that he would choose. The reason for his paranoia in the last few years is that Paul Erasmus, had, there have been two assassination attempts on his life since he began telling his story about what happened. I met Erasmus, as directed, uh, he would not sh introduce me to his family, show me where he lived, or any personal details like that. Instead, we sat and talked for hour after hour, about 12 hours in all. Um, w several things struck me about meeting him. One was that uh, he's kind of a, um, oh, I don't know, a, a schleppy, overweight guy, hardly the figure of the, the Rambo-like uh cop that you might expect would be the henchman of apartheid, um, sort of a pathetic-looking character. Uh, Paul told me about what it took to turn him from a regular young white man in South Africa into the monster that he ultimately became, killing people, harassing people, firebombing their homes. The key to changing him was being sent to Namibia. Now, Namibia was really like South Africa's Vietnam. It was a foreign land where young men, fairly naive young men, could be sent to a killing field. And it was the place where Paul Erasmus first killed. And what Paul told me was that once you've killed once, it becomes a lot easier to do it again. He then told me about the night when he did his best work. Just... Just to say for listeners who aren't familiar with the history, uh, Namibia was under the control of, was occupied by the South African apartheid regime at the time. That's right. There was a, a full-scale war going on in Namibia. Uh, on the Namibian side, there was uh, the group uh, by the name of SWAPO, Southwest African People's Organization, fought a 30-year liberation war. And I actually saw that and reported on that war for the Nation magazine in the mid-1980s. Uh, very much a forgotten Cold War and a, a very sad and brutal affair where one-tenth of the Namibian population was killed by the occupying South African army. One of those soldiers was Paul Erasmus. So Namibia was the key to turning Erasmus into what he ultimately became. And what I later understood was that Namibia was simply a laboratory for the war at home. 
home being South Africa. And so it came to pass that many South African policemen tried and uh, perfected the various torture techniques that came to be uh, later in common use in South Africa. For Paul Erasmus, it was the beginning of his descent into being uh, torturing and, and harassing people on a regular basis. Um, Erasmus was in charge of uh, the South African Council of Churches, and indeed uh, the whole white left was kind of his beat in Johannesburg. Chikani fell under his purview because in the thinking of the security police, uh, no black man like Chikani could be smart enough to run a, a internationally known organization like the Council of Churches. So they were viewed essentially as frontmen for white communists, as, as Erasmus told me. Um, well, one thing led to another, and Erasmus was involved in the scouting operation to poison Frank Chikani. One night, he went out, according to him, with his partner, and they scouted Chikani's residence. Now, Erasmus, interestingly, claims not to have actually placed the poison on Frank Chikani's clothes. The dirty work, he claims, was done by his partner. I should say that I'm skeptical of this view, and it's something that I heard often in the many Truth Commission hearings that I went to, where people placed a crucial little bit of distance between themselves and the dirty deed. It was always somebody else who pulled the trigger or who uh, committed the, the incredibly nefarious act. So for Paul Erasmus, he claims that his partner actually did the poisoning while he did the scouting. Nevertheless, uh, he claims to have put Chikani's name on a death list and to have known that this is ultimately uh, was intended to kill Frank Chikani. We're talking to David Goodman, who is the author of Fault Lines, Journeys into a New South Africa. It's a new book published by the University of California, Berkeley Press. David uh, has been to South Africa a number of times over the last 15 years and just returned from living there for a year. David, as we talk about the old and the new, let's talk about another pairing in your book, Profiles of People, and that is the profile of the architect of apartheid and his grandson and his granddaughter-in-law. Well, Amy, this uh, was a man who, uh, uh, the man known as the architect of apartheid in South Africa was a former prime minister by the name of Hendrik Fuvort. Fuvort was also the man who put Nelson Mandela in jail for what ended up being 27 and a half years. Um, Hendrik Vervoort was prime minister from 1958 until he was assassinated by a deranged messenger in parliament in 1966. It was he who really implemented uh, the most repressive apartheid laws, who carried out the grand dream of separation, which is in fact what the word apartheid means, separation of the races and white supremacy. Well, I, pro I went back to revisit the Vervoort family. Obviously, Hendrik Vervoort, no longer alive, was ably represented by his son, a man in his late 60s by the name of Wilhelm Vervoort, a retired uh, geology professor, who still clings to that same apartheid ideal that his father advocated. And I profiled the grandson of Hendrik Vervoort, also named Wilhelm, Wilhelm Jr. Wilhelm Jr. has left the lager. The lager was the proverbial uh, circling of the bandwagons, of the wagons, the defensive posture of Afrikaner settlers. Um, 
he is now a member of the african national congress the party of nelson mandela the party that was banned by his grandfather and for two years he worked for the truth and reconciliation commission chronicling the fallout from his grandfather's policies his wife melanie vervoort has returned the vervoort name to the halls of parliament as a member of the african national congress as a footnote i spoke with young wilhelm last week and he was very excited because melanie his wife has received a very high number on the national list of AMC MPs, which what happens there is they will elect a party in when they go to the polls on June 2nd, and then the party, the ANC, will then elect its members. Well, Melanie is very highly regarded in the ANC, and uh, the irony of her surname is well noted. Nelson Mandela visited uh, the elder Mrs. Ferrut, the wife of the architect of apartheid. That's right. In a uh, an image that was broadcast around the world when Nelson Mandela became president in 94, one of his first acts was to visit the wife of the architect of apartheid. She lives in a de facto whites-only enclave. One cannot legally be whites-only, but it's a sort of a, a, a white homeland, a getaway that, uh, that sort of true-blood Afrikaners have created out in the desert. And he went to take tea with her. I should point out where this all began. This began when Nelson Mandela met young Wilhelm Fruvord at a cocktail party. It was a party thrown by kind of the elite of the Afrikaner establishment to meet the man who was about to be elected president in 94. Young Wilhelm went up to Nelson Mandela and said to him, this was a moment he had been dreaming of and in some ways uh, quite nervous about, what he wanted to say to the elder statesman there, Mandela, was to apologize for what his grandfather had done and to apologize for what his people had done. Mandela listened politely, leaning over to, to listen. Mandela's quite a tall man. And uh, finally, in a very grandfatherly way, uh, young Wilhelm's in his early 30s at this point, actually probably late 20s, um, he cuts him off and he said, puts his hand on young Wilhelm's shoulder and he says, Let's forget about the past, he said. You are a fervort, uh, and you have a unique privilege. People will listen to you. And that, in fact, has been very much the case. And Mandela at that time sent to young Wilhelm, how is your grandmother? Well, that began a s small diplomatic process that led to taking tea with the wife of the architect of apartheid, a 94-year-old woman who very graciously... Um, they chatted, and the content of the conversation was inconsequential. Actually, she was having difficulty reading in Afrikaans what she wanted to say to Mandela, which was, I hope you'll be good to my people. And he helped her read in Afrikaans what she wanted to say. But the image, uh, and I've seen the photos many times, of this tall, regal, black statesman uh, standing over this elderly white woman, was uh, very stunningly captured the image of what the new South Africa was about. Let's end with Adelaide Bousseau, another South African you profile in Fault Lines, because I think she really shows the two faces of the new South Africa, just herself embodying them. Adelaide Bousseau is a domestic worker in South Africa. She cleans floors and toilets for in some of the wealthiest homes in the country, in a suburb of Cape Town. 
Adelaide Busso is also a new city councillor. She sits on the council setting rules and laws for those same homes where she cleans toilets and floors. Adelaide is emblematic of the plight that many, if not most, black South Africans find themselves in today, which is that she has political power, but she has no economic power. And indeed, what Adelaide said to me when I first met her in her shack, she is still a squatter outside Cape Town, is that the book of apartheid is still open. That is uh, really probably the most uh, profound image that I left South Africa with, which is the enduring effects of apartheid. The greatest legacy of apartheid is poverty. This is a country with the most unequal distribution of wealth on earth, where there are seven million urban squatters. That poverty is, uh, strikes you the moment you arrive there. It is also the thing that has become the most enduring grievance of black South Africans because the new government uh, of Nelson Mandela and his colleagues has been largely unable to address this. The new government has followed very conservative economic policies that have greatly pleased the World Bank and has infuriated township activists who I spoke with. To give you an idea of how deep that runs, I spoke to Adelaide a few days ago. Um, she was recently given a cell phone by the city council, so I could now speak to her. I never was able to before. I always had to drive a half hour and hope that she was there and find her. Adelaide told me in this phone conversation um, some good news, which is that the shack that she's been living in with her three grown sons is going to be upgraded by the government to a, a very small cinder block uh, house. Um, she also told me that she was uh, while she is now a member of the City Council for the African National Congress and has been a lifelong member of trade unions and an ANC supporter, she will be running for re-election, but she is leaving the ANC. She is going to be running as part of a small party that, frankly, is to the right of the ANC, and, and I don't see it offering much promise, but she's in a situation where she feels that the person who had come to save her has failed, and anybody else, including the National Party, who she was flirting with at one point, uh, starts to look pretty good. I don't think that it's a given that the ANC, under its new leader, Thabo Mbeki, and Frank Ciccone, for that matter, are going to be able to convince people that the redemption that they waited so long for, that they will simply have to keep waiting before they finally attain it. Well, David, I want to thank you very much for joining us. As usual, it's a pleasure talking to you. David Goodman is author of the new book, Fault Lines, Journeys into the New South Africa. It's published by University of California, Berkeley Press, profiling eight people, including the grandson and granddaughter-in-law and grandfather um, of apartheid, the architect of apartheid, uh, Frank Chikani, uh, one of the leaders of South Africa and the man who tried to have him killed a number of times and many others. Today we move from Nelson Mandela back to Martin Luther King. Again, yesterday, April 4th, would have been, uh, well, it was the 31st anniversary of the assassination of the great civil rights leader. We'll go out with his Like words. anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Peace with God.
and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Martin Luther King assassinated April 4th, 1968. And if you'd like to order a cassette copy of today's show, you can call the Pacifica Archives at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. Tomorrow on Democracy Now! I'll bring you excerpts of an event I'm going to tonight in New York at the historic Helen Hayes Theater. Uh, speaking out against the killings in Yugoslavia. Among the people who will be there, Rosie Perez, Vanessa Redgrave, Tim Robbins, Peter Yarrow, and many others. They'll be reading the emails and letters from the war. That's tomorrow on Democracy Now! And we'd like to hear what you're doing in this country about the bombings both of Yugoslavia and Iraq. Please call us on our comment line, and we'll play some of those comments, 212 209-2999. That's 212-209-2999. Democracy Now! is produced by Maria Carrion and David Love. Our technical director is Errol Maitland. From the studios of WBAI in New York, I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! And wounded Martin Luther King Just died in vain